Good morning, Church. Today our scripture reading comes from Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 to 24. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. And bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him. And he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him piece by piece and the head and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering, like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail, and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burnt the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you, Ryan, for reading so well for us and for the music team and Joseph for leading us so well in worship. Uh, my name is Z. I'm the lead pastor here at Mount Covenant Church. I see a few new faces, and if I haven't met you, haven't had a conversation with you, would love to talk to you after the service. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's help to understand His Word this morning? Father, we thank you so much that this is your holy, inerrant Word. We pray that as we gather in your presence, that you would send your Spirit to take your Word and write it upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
My friends, we spent the last few weeks working our way through the book of Leviticus. And to many people who read the Bible, the book of Leviticus is the end of your Bible reading plan. You get confused by all of these details and you see that it isn't really, you, you don't seem to see that it's relevant to you. And so many of us stop in the book of Leviticus. I hope that over the course of the last few weeks, you've begun to see that the book of Leviticus is incredibly relevant to us because it points to Jesus Christ and it points to our need for sacrifice in order to be right before Almighty God. Let me just give you a quick overview of what we've covered so far. In Leviticus chapter 1 to 7, we've seen God's instructions for five different offerings and five different sacrifices. There was the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Last week in chapter 8, we saw that God doesn't just give instructions for the offering. He gives instructions for how the priests who are to carry out these sacrifices and offerings are to be set apart and made holy to carry out these sacrifices. In chapter 9 today, what was hinted at at the beginning is made clear for us. In chapter 9, some people call this the first worship service of the nation of Israel. All of these instructions for how the sacrifices are to be put into practice by the priests are actually carried out in Leviticus chapter 9. But more than that, in Leviticus chapter 9, we're given crystal clear clarity as to the purpose of these sacrifices. Now remember, many weeks ago as we began the book of Leviticus, we made a note that the book of Leviticus continues from where the book of Exodus ended off. In the book of Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35, the people of Israel had received the law of God. They had built a tabernacle. Everything seemed to be in place according to God's command. But it says when the presence of God descended and the glory of God appeared on the tent of meeting, Exodus 40 verse 35 says, Moses, the leader of God's people, the greatest of all Israelites at that point in time, even Moses could not enter into the tent of meeting because the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In other words, at the book of Exodus, we're left on a cliffhanger. Even after receiving the law and all of these great instructions, there remains a great chasm, a great gap between God and his people. God is holy and humanity is sinful. And in spite of the law and all of these things that have been put into place, man can yet not dwell in the presence of God in his glory. And so we're given these sacrifices as a way to close that gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of human beings. And in chapter 9, what we was hinted at is made clear. Look at verse 4. You see in chapter 9, verse 1 to 4, 1 to 3, we have Moses giving instructions for how the different sacrifices are to be carried out on the day of worship. But in verse 4, it says, For today the Lord will appear to you. Again, look at verse 6. This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do. All of these sacrifices. Now, what is the purpose for all of these sacrifices? It says here in verse 6, That the glory of the Lord may appear to you. All of these rituals, all of these ceremonies had the singular goal of making it possible for a sinful people to dwell in the presence of God and to see Him in His glory without being obliterated. You see, friends, the end goal of biblical religion is never just ritual. It's never just even morality and it's surely not just idea. The end goal of all biblical religion is for the people of God to see and savor God in his presence and in his glory. 
Now, friends, I read a book uh, by a church historian by the name of Robert Wilkin a number of years ago. It's an academic volume, but it's one that really profoundly affected me. The name of the book is The Spirit of Early Christian Thought. And Robert Wilkin is an expert in early Christian, uh, the, uh, the early centuries of the church. Now, in this book, Robert Wilkin traces the pattern of early Christian thinking. He interacted with the early church fathers. And this is what he found. He says this, the Christian intellectual tradition is an exercise in thinking about the God who is known and seeking the one who is loved. In other words, what Robert Wilkins is saying is this, the goal of early Christian thought was never mere idea, was never mere ritual or religion or even morality. The goal of early Christian thought, and they gave a lot of thought to who God is through the scriptures, was to seek, find, and see God in his glory. Robert Wilkin, after surveying various centuries, felt that the Bible verse that best captured the spirit of early Christian thought was Psalm 105, verse 4, that the psalmist says, seek his face always. Seek the face of God always. Why did he pick this? Because St. Augustine, one of the greatest saints of the church, in his book on the Trinity, quoted this very psalm four different times. In one of the instances, this is what Augustine said, let us set out on the street of love, making for him of whom it is said, seek his face always. The goal of early Christian thought is to seek the face of God and to see God in his glory. In the sixth century, Gregory the Great said this, the vision of God in our, is our minds true refreshment. Friends, the end goal of Christian religion is never mere ritual, not even morality, not just ideas, but is to see God in his glory. And Leviticus 9 shows us how we can see God in his glory. And there are four things here that we need. Number one, we need to hear the promise. Number two, we need to acknowledge the problem. Number three, we need to embrace the provision. And number four, we need to enjoy the presence. Come with me to verse four. As I've mentioned before, twice God makes an announcement and a promise in verse four and verse six. Today, the Lord will appear to you. In verse six, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. In these verses, God has made an announcement and a promise. He's saying, although you are sinful, my intention is to make a way for you, sinful people, to still be able to be in my presence and to see me in my glory. This is the promise or the announcement or the intention that God Almighty has made to his very own people. I will appear to you and you will see me in my glory. Without the promise of God, without the intention of God, without the announcement of God, none of us have any hope of being in the presence of God and seeing his glory. The gap, the chasm between both of us is too far. God himself must close the gap, and he closes the gap. The first thing he does is to make an announcement and make a promise that he will appear to his people in his glory. Now, what does it mean for God to appear in his glory and what does it mean for us to see God in his glory? My well, friends, the word glory in the original has a sense of weightiness or heaviness. It's a sense of his supreme worth and great splendor. 
Some scholars say when God appears in his glory, it is the visible or the manifest presence of God. To see God in his glory is to see God in all of his splendor and all of his worth. Now, friends, it is a glorious thing to see God in his glory, but it is also a very dangerous thing. You see, friends, God is the purest being in the entire universe, and we are impure. And therefore, if God were to come into contact with us, we would be crushed. No, friends, something needs to be done to enable us to dwell safely in God's glorious presence. And in spite of this great chasm, God has made that promise. He's making it clear to his people. He's saying to us, my intention, even though you are sinful and separated and impure, my intention is to come and dwell with you and for you to see me in my glory. And the first thing we need to do to see the glory of God, to encounter God in his presence in a way that changes our lives is to hear his promise. But the second thing we need to do is to acknowledge the problem. Now, friends, Leviticus is an incredibly complicated book. It's so repetitive, so many different details. One of the reasons for all of this detail is to show us over and over again that we really do have a problem. We cannot dwell in God's presence and we cannot see his glory without doing harm to ourselves apart from something that God has to do for us. You see, friends, before God can appear in his glory to us, verse 2 says, Aaron, the priest, must first offer a sacrifice of a bull calf as a sin offering. And then he must offer a ram for a burnt offering. Now, this is a sacrifice for himself as a priest before he goes on to make a sacrifice for the people. Now, this is a very interesting point here. Remember, last week, we saw that Aaron had already gone through seven days of purification. There were already many sacrifices that were made for him to set him apart as a high priest in order to carry out the sacrifices of God. But here, when he's about to conduct the first worship service, another sacrifice needs to be made for his sins. And the sacrifice is the sacrifice of a bull calf. The only instance ever that it specified the kind of animal that Aaron is supposed to sacrifice. It's a calf. Now, why do you think God wants Aaron to sacrifice a bull calf in this instant? Well, friends, it harkens back to Exodus chapter 32. Remember, friends, in Exodus chapter 32, Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. He put Aaron in charge. And instead of being faithful and waiting for the provision of God from heaven, what did Aaron and the people do? They got very impatient. Hey, where is this Moses? Uh, takes so long already. Lakopi also so long. Walao, hey, you know, where is he? And so they got really impatient. And what did they do? He got everyone to bring their jewelry, their gold. They melted it down. They produced a golden calf. Aaron said in Exodus 32 verse 4, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt, pointing to the golden calf and leading the people of God, not to the worship of the true and living God, but to this idol, this golden calf. And friends, that is the essence of sin. It's treating something that isn't God 
as if it is God. It is turning to this golden calf and says, you are the one that delivered me. You are the one that loves me. Rather the God on Mount Sinai who is giving the law to Moses. And that is the very heart of what sin is. You see, friends, sin isn't about just doing wrong things. Sin is where your heart is. The biblical term for this is idolatry. Treating something as God that isn't God. Another term that the Old Testament writers use to describe sin is adultery, spiritual adultery. We are to be faithful to God. Our affections are to be His. But instead of giving our affections to Him, we give our affections to other things. So friends, you may not have committed murder. You may not have stolen anything. You may not have committed a criminal breach of trust. But it doesn't mean you're sinless. If your affections are elsewhere and not attached to the Almighty God, you have committed idolatry and you are spiritually sinful. And Aaron, my friend, had to be reminded of this, and so do we. Now, friends, it almost seems like God is taking Aaron's sin and rubbing it in his face. It's like, hey, remember Exodus 32. Remember Exodus 32. Remember how you sinned. Remember how you sinned. And we think, you know, God is being cruel and just kind of laying a, laying a guilt trip on Aaron. Well, that's not what's happening here. You see, friends, some people tell me, you know, Z, we shouldn't be so sin conscious. We must be grace conscious. So please don't talk so much about sin. Come on, Jesus Christ died on the cross already. Don't talk so much about sin. Talk more about grace. Heard that before, right? Hmm? Let me submit to you, friends, according to Leviticus chapter 9, if you are not sin conscious, you will never be grace conscious. If you cannot see the seriousness of your sin before Almighty God, grace becomes cheap. Grace becomes very lame. It's only when you see the seriousness of your sin before Almighty God that you will embrace the greatness of God's grace. You will only see and enjoy the grace of God if you see the seriousness of your sin. And friends, the Bible tells us that our sin is great, and because our sin is great, the grace of God is greater still. So Aaron is reminded again, you are a sinner, you are an idolater, but today, Aaron, you are forgiven, and you are now high priest, leading my people in worship. And so Aaron has to offer a sin offering and a burnt offering for himself in verse 2. He's reminded again, and he acknowledges, I too, as a leader of Israel, am sinful and need the grace of God. After he's offered offerings for himself, verses 3 to 4 tells us that he then makes offerings for the people. The sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, and the grain offering. Why? Verse 7 says it twice. All of these sacrifices were to make atonement for yourself, Aaron, and for the people. All of these sacrifices were to fix the broken relationship between the priest, the people, and their God. My friends, we spent a long time in the book of Leviticus, and we've already seen in Leviticus chapter 1 to 7 the meaning of these different sacrifices. But did you realize, friends, that the meaning of these sacrifices reflects different aspects of how our relationship with Almighty God is broken? Think about it, friends. The burnt offering, 
The burnt offering is meant to make us acceptable before God. Why? Because in our sins, we are unacceptable to God. The grain offering is meant to express our gratitude to God. Why, friends? Because in and of ourselves, we are ungrateful for all the blessings of God. The peace offering is to bring about communion between God and us and between us and one another. Why? Because we're not in communion with God and we're not in communion with one another. The sin offering is meant to cleanse us. Why? Because we're impure and dirty and need the cleansing of God. There's a guilt offering which is meant for restitution. That offering is not being made today and we'll address that later. But what's that for? That's to put right where things have gone wrong. So each one of these sacrifices expresses some aspect of how our relationship with God is broken. And God makes provision for that relationship to be fixed. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Z, you know, I, I don't believe in God. So all of this sounds really ludicrous to me. This sounds completely irrelevant to me. All of it. Now, if that's you, I'm going to ask you a question. Really? All of it? Every single bit? I listened to a podcast this week, and uh, there's been a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time. It's called A Secular Age, written by Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher. It's about 900 pages. I might just buy it for my birthday, uh, but I want to get into it. But in this podcast, it highlights something that I've heard that Charles Taylor has said. In this book, Charles Taylor says that our modern culture is incredibly secular. But even though it's incredibly secular, Charles Taylor uses this word, a modern secular culture is haunted by the divine. It's haunted by the divine. What does he mean? He says, even though we might not believe in God in our modern secular culture, there is still a yearning and a longing for something beyond ourselves. There's still a yearning and a longing for something that, in a sense, only makes sense if the divine, if God, if the supernatural is real. There's a longing for truth, there's a longing for beauty, there's a longing for justice, and a longing for purpose. Now, some of you are medical. Uh, have you heard of the phantom limb? You know, for some people, I, I think it's up to 80%. If they have an, a, an organ or a, a part of their body that's amputated, in nearly 80% of those cases, they continue to feel like that part of their body is still there. And in a small percentage, they feel pain, even though there's no limb that's there. And in some ways, that's what's happened in a modern secular culture. We've tried to amputate God, but we are haunted by the divine. We feel, even if we say we don't believe in God, that there is some semblance of the divine that is still there. There is a yearning, even in the most secular person, for something that's bigger than them. Friends, look at what's an offer in the five sacrifices. Acceptance, gratitude, connection, purification, and restitution. Why is it, friends, that you work so hard to be accepted by others, to be accepted by the academy, to be accepted by your bosses, to be accepted in career? Why? Because you're haunted by the divine. You're longing for an acceptance. Can it only come from God? Why is it, friends, when someone thanks you for the good things that you've done, you feel that is right and that is good, gratitude is a good thing, you're haunted by the divine. Why is it, friends, even if you're the most introverted of introverts, there's still a longing to be connected to someone else? 
Friends, even introverts need others, you know, because you see, when one introvert comes and meets another introvert and they see each other and they say, you too, what they mean is, wow, hang on, no need to put in so much energy to inter interact with one another. You found connection. Even an introvert is longing for connection to someone else. Why are we longing for connection? Why is loneliness such a big deal? You're haunted by the divine. Why is it, friends, that you feel dirty? Dirty by the things that you've done and dirty by the things that have been done on you by other people. Why do you feel dirty and why do you feel I need to be cleansed? Well, friends, you're haunted by the divine. And why is it, friends, that you long to put right what has gone wrong in your life? You're haunted by the divine. You see, friends, we can try to amputate God and say he doesn't exist, but the yearnings and the longings within us remain our secular culture is haunted by the divine. And rather than ignoring that haunting, rather than saying it's not real, friends, I would say the better approach is for us to follow the trail of that haunting back to its source and to find a God who is truly there and who truly loves you and who truly can give you the acceptance, gratitude, connection, purification, and restitution that your heart longs for. Even if you say, I don't believe in this God, Follow that trail back to him. Acknowledge the problem and follow that trail and you will find a God who is not just holy, but incredibly merciful, incredibly loving, and incredibly ready to meet you. Well, friends, acknowledging the problem is great, but we need to go one step further. We need to embrace the provision. In verses 8 to 14, what we have is Aaron actually making the sacrifices that he was commanded to make for himself. And verses 15 to 21, he makes the offerings for the people. Verse 8 to 21 is all about Aaron not just receiving the instructions, but putting them into practice. And friends, we can listen to all of these details in air-conditioned comfort and forget how expensive laborious and gory and messy this entire affair of the sacrifices is. Now take a note of a couple of things, friends. The calf and the ram were some of the most expensive animals in their day. And yet God tells Aaron, get a calf and get a ram and offer it as a sacrifice. It was an expensive offering. There's the pouring of blood for cleansing, the burning of animal parts, the washing of the insides, None of these things were pleasant at all. They were expensive, difficult, gory, and messy. None of these things was easy, but they were necessary. They were necessary to close that gap between God and humanity. Well, friends, Hebrews 10.10 tells us that all of these sacrifices ultimately point to Jesus. He's the one that bore the gore. He's the one that did the heavy lifting. So we don't need to go about making these animal sacrifices anymore. But here's the thing, friends. In order for us to embrace the provision that God has made in Christ, that will include some level of difficulty. That will include some level of mess and gore and expense. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus, even though we don't have to put up with all of these animal sacrifices, can be expensive, laborious, gory, and messy affair. We need to take up our cross. We need to count the cost. But friends, it's worth it because verses 25 and 26 says, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Following Jesus will be an expensive, laborious, gory, and messy affair. But it is both necessary and it is both worth it because nothing compares to the worth of your soul. Friends, you might have been here for a couple of months. You're listening to the gospel. You're knowing God has made a provision for my sins in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you even agree to that. Friends, you need to go one step further and embrace that provision that God has made for you. Don't just stand on the outside looking in, studying the subject. You need to enter in. And what that might mean for some of you is you have to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the very first time. Don't delay. Embrace the provision. Just acknowledge the problem. You need to embrace the provision, what God has done for you. For some others, it will mean taking the call of Jesus to live a life of repentance and faith far more seriously. It means knowing that the Christian life is not hot tub religion. It is uncomfortable. It is difficult. It is painful, but it's incredibly satisfying, and it's worth it. Are you making decisions in life, friends, that are shaped by the provision of God in Christ? What is your call to repentance and following of Jesus? What does it look like? It might look like different things for different people. But let me just give you a practical thing that we can all do together. Friends, you know our gatherings of worship, they're not just merely structured in the way that we like. We really believe that the gospel and the Bible tells us to construct our worship services in a certain way. We enter in and it's the Holy God. We hear the promise. We hear the call of God. Come into my presence even though you're a sinful people. We hear the call to repentance, and we repent of our sins. Every week, sometimes it's the same prayer over and over and over again. What is that prayer? That prayer, friend, is like the calf in the face of Aaron. It's a reminder again that we do fall short of God's glory. But because we fall short of God's glory, we see the majesty of his goodness and his grace. Without seeing how serious our sin is, we will never be electrified by the grace of God. So friends, I just want to say to you, take that time where God calls us into his holy presence. And when he calls us to repentance, take it seriously. Don't just read that prayer as if it's a ritual. Engage with it in your hearts. Now, I'm just, uh, I asked permission from Cindy and the girls to share this because it's a bit embarrassing. Uh, they're not here, but uh, I shared it at the first service, so I'll share it again. I don't know about you, um, but we still squabble as a family. Uh, any perfect families here? No squabbles, no arguments. Okay. And um, even as your pastor, and I'm not making excuses for this, some of those squabbles happen just before church. In fact, especially before church. 
uh, and just before I need to get into the pulpit to preach. It didn't happen this morning, praise the Lord for His grace, uh, but it often happens. Okay, and so we come in to worship. There's a call to the holiness of God. We sing all these nice songs that the team puts together, and then there's a call to repentance. And at that point in time, uh, I can do two things. I can do the dignifying thing and be in a posture of prayer and pray as you expect your pastor to do, but not really engage with it. So what you will find me doing, and you guys have seen it, and sometimes I will walk up to Cindy and I'll say to her, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for what I did. Let's try again. I turn to the girls and I say the same thing. Now, over time, they also do that to me, you know, but uh, you know, I need to set the example because like, I'm the father. Take that time of call to repentance seriously. If you need to, send a text message to someone. Or just whisper. It doesn't have to be complicated, but it does need to be serious. Don't just go through the ritual. Say, oh, okay, Lord, I should have pardoned already. No, take it seriously. And friends, as you notice the pattern of the gospel in worship, and we engage with it meaningfully with our minds and with our hearts, that becomes the pattern of our lives. We will keep short accounts with God and with one another. We will take his call to repentance and faith seriously. Friends, don't just acknowledge the problem. I know you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner too. Embrace the provision. Come to Christ for the first time, for the second time, for the third time, for the fourth time, for the millionth time. He is more than ready to receive you, to forgive you, to embrace you, and to give you a fresh start. Number four, we need to enjoy the presence. It says in verse 22, Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. Now, this is probably Aaron indicating his intention to bless the people as the high priest, as the mediator, as the go-between between God and his people. The sacrifices have been carried out. The curse can be lifted. And so now you can be blessed. That's his intention. But then in verse 23, it says, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Now, friends, when you read verse 23, you should gasp. You don't because you haven't read Exodus 40, verse 35. Exodus 40, 35 says, Even Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. But now, because all of the sacrifices has been offered, not just Moses, but Aaron, that great idolater, the golden calf Aaron, that Aaron, he and Moses get to enter the presence of God and commune with God. And these are not just nobodies. These are the priests. So as they enter into the presence of God, they're not just going for themselves. They're going as representatives of the people of God. They're standing in the presence of God for the people of God. That chasm has been closed. That gap between God and humanity has been closed. Moses and Aaron can now enter into the tent of meeting. And then verse 23 goes on to say, They came out and they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Verse 24 says, Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. In the Old Testament, fire was a sign of God's presence. And in this 
situation, that fire was a sign that God had indeed accepted the sacrifices and the offerings. Sin was atoned for. The relationship was fixed. The curse was lifted. And therefore now, blessing can flow. And how did the people respond? Look at verse 24. Not in a very Presbyterian way. It says in verse 24, they shouted. Now friends, that sense of the word is they shouted for joy. And they fell on their faces. They experienced the joy and awe of being in God's presence and seeing God in his glory. The gap had been closed. The curse had been lifted. The blessing had come. Reconciliation was theirs. They are in the presence of God. They see his glory. They rejoice with trembling. And friends, that's what we're meant to do as well. As we encounter the presence of God in his glory. The end goal of Christian life, friends, is not just to know a bunch of theology. It's not just to be moral people and upright people, although all of those things matter. The end goal of Christianity is to seek and find and see the glory of God. Have you experienced that? And to rejoice with trembling in his presence. Now, friends, there's one offering that's not been offered here that has been explained to us in Leviticus 1 to 7, and that's the guilt offering. Why? Why isn't the guilt offering being offered on this day of worship? You see, friends, the guilt offering is what's also known as the restitution offering. It's the offering that symbolizes that we, as God's people, need to put right what we've done wrong. Very important. Very, very important. But that offering is not being offered on this day of worship. Why, friends? Well, friends, because the day of worship is the day of celebration, not the day of restitution. Yes, restitution will come, and it's very important. But we need to get our priorities right. We celebrate the presence of God. We celebrate the fact that God has closed this gap between us. We celebrate that we are now in his presence and we see his glory. And we need to celebrate that and enjoy that before, then we, before we move on to make restitution. You see, friends, Christian duty always flows from Christ's beauty. We don't come to God and say, look, God, I'm going to put my life right. All the things I've ever done wrong, I'm going to put it right. And then I come to you and you will accept me. No, friends. It's the other way around. You cannot put your life together right. You come and it will cost you greatly to come to him. But as you come to him, God is the one that does everything to reconcile you to him. He's the one that makes things right between him and you. And as you enjoy his presence and allow that grace to fill your heart, it will move you and lead you to make difficult decisions and difficult actions to put right what you've done wrong. But friends, celebration, 
precedes restitution, and restitution proceeds from celebration because Christian duty always flows from the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Friends, there's more. With the coming of Jesus Christ, we have so much more reason to celebrate. Not only is Jesus the true, better, and final sacrifice, Hebrews 9.24 tells us that he is the true, better, and last priest. It says in Hebrews 9.24, he entered not into the holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus, my friends, is the true and better sacrifice. Jesus, my friends, is the true and better high priest. And when you come to him and you embrace him by faith, you can be sure that gap between God and you is closed. Your sins have been atoned for. You're reconciled to God. The curse is gone. The blessing has come. Friends, there's more. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's God's promise. I will draw near to you. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Where do we see the glory of God today? Where do we see the weightiness and the heaviness and the splendor and the worth of all that God is? We see all of it, friends, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see all of it, friends, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension to heaven. In Christ, we see God in all of his perfections. We see the weight and the heaviness of his perfect justice, we see the weight and the heaviness of his perfect mercy. We see the weight and the heaviness of his perfect truth, and we see the weight and the heaviness of his perfect love. In Jesus Christ, you see a God who is strong and firm, but gentle and kind. In Christ, we see and experience and know the glory of God. My friends, it's only in Christ that we can really hear the promise of God that I will indeed dwell with you. It's only in Christ that we can honestly acknowledge the problem of our disordered affections and our sin and separation from God. It's only in Christ that we can truly embrace the provision of God for salvation and a right relationship with God. And it's only in Christ that we can truly enjoy the presence of Almighty God as Christ himself pours out his spirit into our hearts. So friends, let us set out on the street of love together, making for him of whom it is said, seek his face always. Let's pray. Father, we ask you today to make your word real to our hearts, that we would really hear 
the promise that you have made through Christ that you will dwell among us. And Father, we would not be too proud or afraid to acknowledge the problem. And Father, that you would give us the ability to embrace the provision of Christ by turning to him in faith today, whether for the first time or for the millionth time. And Father, more than anything else, we cry out for your presence to be among us as we once again gaze at Christ as we sing this final hymn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the time back to Joseph.